It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Twenty twenty and twenty twenty one have brought unexpected, strange, and often disturbing events, reshaping the way we live our lives, the way we care, and the way we work. For some, these changes have been positive in many ways. For others, they've been devastating, and for most, they've been somewhere in between. One of the areas impacted significantly is the retail sector. In Australia, in the early stages of the pandemic, we saw very peculiar scenes as people started hoarding toilet paper and in some instances, worried shoppers battled in supermarkets for the last remaining rolls. Fears of toilet paper running out saw people queuing for hours, paying exorbitant prices and even coming to blows just to get their hands on what had become a precious commodity. It even warranted prime ministerial intervention with Scott Morrison describing the practice as un-Australian. And while it opened the lid to plenty of dubious one-liners, the concern people felt was real and the reality of the situation for people working in supermarkets and corner stores was at the time far from comical. Indeed, many retail workers have been feeling the impacts of the pandemic very directly. A new study by researchers from the Australian National University and the University of Sydney has found that retail workers have faced an increase in customer abuse, as well as heightened job insecurity and stress from enforcing COVID-19 rules. Disturbingly, the study found that those most negatively affected are young, women, casual and linguistically diverse workers. So how have workers in the retail sector been affected What can be done to better support those workers? And what can we do to ensure that they have a safe and a secure working environment into the future? Welcome to the pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy and Director of the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre and the Children's Policy Centre. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net here at the Crawford School. And of course, the Crawford School of Public Policy is the Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Don't forget to check out the range of degree programs and short courses that we have on offer. You can find everything at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So do go and check out what we have available through those courses. 
We are once again recording remotely today, and so there may be some noises in the background, and we apologise for that and for the quality of the recording. We are really hoping to get back into the studio soon, and certainly to be back into the studio next year. I am on my own today. My pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter, is off being a cardiologist, so we won't have interruptions from Anna Greta's chickens today, but we will miss her. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome today two of the authors of the study called Pandemic Pressures, which looks at the impact of the pandemic on workers in the retail sector. We have with us Professor Ariadne Roman. Ariadne is the Sir John Bunting Chair of Public Administration here at the Crawford School. She's Deputy Dean Researcher of the Australia and New Zealand School of Government, or ANZOG as many of us know it. Ariadne's research interests are diverse and include citizen engagement, digital politics and governance, women and the future of work, policy advocacy and young people and politics. Ariadne is a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and is a Visiting Senior Fellow at the Weizenbaum Institute for Networked Society in Berlin in Germany. Ariadne, welcome. It's so good to have you with us today. Thanks, Sharon, and thanks for the invitation. We also have with us Bryony Lipton. Bryony is a postdoctoral research associate within the Women, Work and Leadership Research Group at the University of Sydney. She is a visiting fellow at ANZOG, and her research uses qualitative methods to examine women's experiences of work. Bryony's work has focused on the gender dimensions of academic life for women in Australian universities, and of course she has been one of the central researchers and co-author of the report that we're talking through today. Bryony completed her PhD in sociology at the ANU in 2019. Bryony, welcome. So good to have you with us today. Hi, thank you so much. So first of all, congratulations on this study. This is such an important piece of work and it's a fascinating read. And we want to talk through what the impacts have been on workers today. But before we we go to that conversation, can we just begin by talking a little bit about the nature of the retail sector, Um, perhaps a bit about how it was changing prior to 2020, particularly as a result of new technologies, but how those changes have been accelerated and redirected by the pandemic. Bryony, what have you been hearing from people about both the nature of the the sector, but some of those changes? Yeah, the retail sector is experiencing rapid work intensification and technological change right now, which has only further been propelled by COVID, such as automation, the outsourcing of work, uh, the adoption of AI and virtual reality technologies, all of which increase job precarity and uh, make career pathways in retail a lot less clearly defined. In retail online shopping and the shift, um, shifting of employment opportunities from stores to distribution centres and self-checkout machines and iPads are all changing how workers interact with customers. The pandemic is undoubtedly changing the nature of work and the workplace. Employees in the retail, fast food and distribution sectors constitute at least 11% of the Australian workforce. So it's a critical sector to the economy, but also to our communities and ultimately to the routines of our personal day-to-day lives. And what have some of those changes around technology in particular meant for, for people working in the sector? Ariadne, would you like to begin by mapping some of those impacts on people working in the sector? I think, as Brian is saying, the we already had that momentum going for the changing nature of work within the sector. 
in that we were seeing jobs being lost at that kind of front line. If you think about supermarkets as an example of retail work, and a lot of our survey respondents do work in supermarkets, they were frontline workers throughout the pandemic. They were considered essential workers, but we'd already seen a shift away from people working, um, you know, at the cash registers to customers themselves going through and scanning their items. So this change was already happening, that kind of automation within supermarkets, uh, but we've also seen an increase of people working in the back end as well as distribution and home delivery became really important for different retail organisations. So those kind of transitions were important. They were changing the nature of work, uh, and but COVID was affecting all of those people because they still needed to go to work. We still all needed to access food and essential services. At the other end, some of the specialty retail We saw during the pandemic a lot of shops had to close, particularly in the lockdown states of New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT. So workers were either deployed or they were were stood down during that period. So it was kind of a, a mixed sort of experience for workers and businesses themselves, as Bryony pointed out, needed to really respond rapidly to shift to online sales and whether or not that continues into the future and whether or not we as customers continue to see our experience and engagement with retail as predominantly a digital or online one is going to be really interesting and also have um, a big impact on the future of work within retail. So this the study that, that each of you have been involved in is is such an important one in understanding how some of those changes have impacted on workers who, as you say, Ariadne, were essential workers throughout so much of, of the lockdown period. Bryony, you were uh, were one of the people who were centrally involved in doing the interviews for the study. Can you just talk us through how you went about doing the study and who was involved in terms of the participants? Ariadne's already mentioned that you had a number of people who were working in supermarkets, but can you just give us a sense across the board of who the participants were? Yeah, sure. So the phase one of the project was is a qualitative component to the project and it involved uh, interviewing 30 uh, stakeholders in the retail sector, senior leaders um, from different large retail companies and also adjacent areas to retail. So you had quite a broad range of, of people involved in the study. Yeah, and it's really to get that top level understanding of the changing nature of the sector. So Ariadne, Bryony was was explaining the, the qualitative component of the work, and, and that's always so important for getting those deep insights. But this was a, a mixed method study, I think, and you were doing a survey as well? That's right. So we commissioned Ipsos Social Research to do an online survey with people working in retail and fast food. So they were able to produce a broadly representative sample. And retail workers, interestingly, are at least 11% of the Australian workforce. Uh, So it's quite a large section of people who are um, employed within the sector. In the survey itself, we were keen to get experiences across retail, so people who were working in sort of food and beverage areas, so that includes fast food and supermarkets, people working in specialty shops and retail, as well as people working in distribution and warehouses. Uh, what we did find of the sample, which we know is indicative of the broader population of retail workers in Australia, is that very few of those workers, so 40% of those workers, are in secure full-time permanent work. The remainder, 60%, are in either casual work 
or uh, permanent part-time. And this kind of shapes the nature of the insecurity in the industry already that was exacerbated during the pandemic. We also know that workers in the industry are a majority are women and they also tend to be young. A large proportion of workers across retail are under 30. So that maps out beautifully. You know, the Some of the issues that were there prior to the pandemic and, and who you were talking with. I want to come back to that in- issue of, of insecurity and precarious work that's that's so important. But first I wanted to, to pick up on something that I think struck a lot of us when we read the report and what people were saying about some of the, the abuse that they had experienced, particularly during the pandemic, not during lockdowns always, but you know around those times of, of real stress. Bryony, can you tell us a little bit about what people were saying about the way they were treated by customers um, during that period? And what that increase in abuse directed towards retail staff that you found had on on people who were at the receiving end? Yeah, there's been a massive amount of pressure on retail workers and you've really got this confluence of issues as lockdowns and restrictions, uh, school closures and increased uh, domestic demands for caring and homeschooling and also growing job precarity as well. And then this all manifests in the form of customer abuse. So most survey respondents reported a notable decrease in the quality of their interactions with customers during the pandemic. And as Ariadne uh, mentioned, this um, was particularly of an impact for women, younger workers, frontline workers, and those from non-English speaking backgrounds, and those working in lockdown regions as well. The retail sector is, is often the sector where young people find their first jobs. So this is why there's such a large portion uh, of young workers. And it's also highly casualized and feminized. And more than half of the industry has been made up of women. So these are some of the groups that have been particularly impacted by customer abuse and those decreased quality of interactions. Thinking about uh, hostility, hostility from customers in relation to COVID regulations has been wildly reported in uh, retail and fast food and hospitality. You know, customers, as you mentioned, fighting over toilet paper, threatening retail workers, road rage in shopping centre car parks and even aggression towards the posties delivering our online orders. Abuse from customers comes from those mix of pandemic stresses, uh, but most notably it's been the lack of availability of certain products and also customers are required to check in. So this is another factor when they when they enter stores. And retail workers have been made responsible for COVID compliance, for making decisions around safety. Um, they have the right to refuse entry to those who aren't wearing a mask um, when we were required to wear masks and not checking in. And there's been a lot of concern around the introduction of vaccine passports. Most of our survey respondents experienced a fair degree of stress in relation to enforcing these COVID safety compliance rules. And those impacted most, again, were women and those from non-English speaking backgrounds, uh, younger workers and frontline workers. Ariadne, I think that's what Bryony is, is describing there is, is really disturbing in terms of who it was in particular that was the target of, of hostility or abuse. And I think we can certainly speculate on, on what the, the reasons were. Did the, the survey or the research more broadly um, get to some of the, the reasons for those workers being disproportionately affected or does your broader work, Ariadne, give us some insights into why it is that those workers were, were so impacted? 
overall, it was workers on the front line, so who were dealing with customers who were more likely to experience customer abuse. It really was a generalisable experience. And it's because we know that those frontline workers tend to be more likely to be women. Uh, they are younger, but particularly uh, precarious or casual workers who don't have a lot of voice within their workplaces to be able to either complain about what's happening to them. So I think that that's why they became quite vulnerable to experiencing that kind of impatience and abuse from from customers in general. So it's about how we think about the position of frontline workers and their kind of engagement. And particularly when during COVID, there would have been less people uh, often working as uh, revenue might have been declining in some shops, we can imagine. They were probably putting people on less shifts on less hours overall, and because we also found in the survey that declining hours was something a lot of people were experiencing, there's more and more pressure on the sort of few frontline workers that are in shops as well to meet the kinds of expectations and demands of customers in that generally stressful situation. Yeah, and when we've thought through the pandemic about the the essential workers and how much we owe those essential workers, I think sometimes we do miss those frontline workers in um, in the supermarkets and the pharmacies and so on that were so critical to you know our lives being able to continue to the community ticking over during lockdowns, particularly. But all those people, also those people who were behind the scenes, and perhaps we we just don't give enough credit to those essential workers who played such an important role over the past couple of years? Um, I think that's really true, Sharon. It's sort of about the visibility of who frontline workers were. Most of the sort of public commentary about people who were and placing themselves at risk, not just from abuse from people, but also at risk from catching COVID too. You know, we tend to talk about professionals. We tend to talk about health workers and teachers and so on, but we haven't really talked about other essential workers who did continue to work throughout the pandemic, didn't have the luxury of working from home like all of us did. Uh, And I think part of our research is about shining a bit more of a light on the experience of those workers who are more likely to be precarious, are less likely to have a voice and have a say and have their stories addressed within the broader sort of public discussion. Just thinking about safety of workers, there's also this concern that workplaces are not ensuring that COVID-safe protocols are being followed, in particular by customers, but also businesses ignoring COVID safety regulations and certain large companies have been questioned over the quality of their COVID safety measures. So Woolworths, for example, recently gained permission from New South Wales Health to implement their own workplace safety regulations in their warehouses. And these regulations include definitions of close and casual contact. And these are less stringent than uh, what was required for other businesses. So that means that rules around when workers are required to isolate had been relaxed. And it's been reported that some warehouse workers have claimed that this has left them feeling exposed to the virus. Workers have also revealed that if they're caught criticising these new regulations, their jobs might be at risk. And this is um, other secondary reports, but it, it does really highlight the tensions between management's desires to ensure their businesses remain open and worker safety. They're such important issues. We will take a short break now, but we will come back after the break and delve into exactly those issues that that you've raised there, Bryony, in a little bit more detail. So listeners, please don't go away. We will be back in just a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of Talking Tech Policy, a new podcast launching on December 9th. Do you want to know how much data Facebook and Google actually hold on you? Why does this matter? And what can you do about it? Will technology really get our world to net zero? And by 2030, will we all be living in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse? What even is the metaverse? Do we want it? How do we shape it? The decisions that we make about technology policy today will shape the technology of tomorrow. And that technology will shape our world. Welcome back. We're here with Ariadne Roman and Bryony Lipton talking about the retail sector in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and what happened to workers during the past two years and particularly during those periods of lockdown when there was such stress across the community. Bryony, just before we went to the break, you were talking about some of those really disturbing things that you found about workers not feeling safe because of the kinds of COVID measures that have been in place and the fact that that some employers and some retail outlets have not been fully implementing um, COVID measures. I just wanted to, to pick up on that a bit more broadly and, and ask you what you saw in the interviews particularly, but the research broadly, about the role that both individual businesses and, and the industry as a collective have been doing to support workers. You know, we've got this issue of safety, but also the hostility that, that workers have faced. Did you hear whether people felt that they were supported broadly by their employers or was that that problem that you raised in terms of safety something that was playing out across all of these issues? You know, when when people felt that they had been um, targeted as for abuse or or that the received hostility from from customers, for example, were their employers stepping in to support them in those situations? I think there's a real confluence of uh, of tensions and stresses going on. So it's important to look you know, not just at the individual, but also the structures surrounding this issue. Ariadne, you wrote in your Peace in Policy Forum that the experiences and concerns of these workers have been underestimated by the media and governments when compared with with other frontline workers. And we were talking about that before the break. What do you think the role should be, um, firstly, of employers in better protecting their workers, but also the role of government in making sure that these workers are, are better supported and better protected. Do, do we need greater regulation here or is it something else? I think that where we need greater regulation is in making sure that people have both uh, secure work but safe work. And I think that's what has been 
sort of thrown into the equation now about how we even think about safety at work. There were um, other industries during the pandemic where that conversation was, um, you know, a, quite a strong one. So quite a, let's think about construction and building, for example. There was a lot of discussion about um, safety at work for those workers. And similarly, retail, which is similarly sort of a large workforce with people um, who might not be as articulate or have sort of professional um, highly educated backgrounds, so there needs to be that kind of representation of their of their views and their entitlement to both secure work and and safe work. And I think that that discussion has probably been an important one. There are a range of employers that are committed to that, but there is that tension between making you know continuing to your business and making money and also ensuring. Um, quality and safe work for your workers. So I think that that's what the pandemic has really brought to light, that we have to really think about the future of work as being something where workers' views are incorporated into how work happens. And of course, a, a central part of that is the the issue of, of insecure work. And that was one of the issues that, that you examined in your study. Bryony, in the study, you found that about half of respondents working reported that their working hours had been impacted as a result of the pandemic. Can you talk us through who was most affected by those those changes and why that was and and how that insecurity was playing out in people's lives? Yeah, so those whose job security was most affected were women, those under 30, frontline and casual workers, and again those from non-English speaking background. Um, and those working in a lockdown region. Despite initial job losses and reduced working hours in the sector, the pandemic has been highly lucrative for many areas in retail, with record sales in food and household and recreational goods, and also the shift to online shopping. So it does really beg the question around the continued job insecurity and unpredictable hours for workers in such a significant sector and why workers have not been, you know, deployed into new areas uh, or new online sales and warehouse roles. There's really this um, counter notion from senior leadership in retail that job losses in this space due to automation uh, is misguided because new technologies are creating new opportunities for more value-adding type roles. And I'm just wondering who will be fitting, filling these value-adding roles. Will it be the workers who've been laid off um, due to automation um, because automation can undertake these repetitive and labour-intensive tasks? Or will these new jobs be filled by more qualified workers? So we really need to think critically about the quality of jobs and the quality of worker flexibility in the hours and rostering and the quality of training for these jobs in the future of retail. And Ariadne, we know that the retail sector is is highly casualised um, and so any kind of disruption is is likely to impact in workers on that sector. We certainly see that in something like a global pandemic, but also you know, much more localised issues that really impact on, on uh, people's hours of work and therefore their, their pay and their livelihoods. Ariadne, you've done a lot of work around the future of work, particularly for women, but but how we should be thinking about work into the future. What lessons can we draw from what has happened over the past couple of years, particularly in relation to the position of, of casual workers, to ensure that retail workers do have a greater level of security in their jobs as, as we move into the future? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I'm particularly interested in that generational change and that um, and the effect on 
on women. I mean, Australia does have one of the highest rates of casual workers in the in the world, and it's kind of become normalised. And my concern is that for a generation of young people, they think working casually, where you don't have entitlements to annual leave or sick leave or um, parental leave and so on, they tend to think that that's the normal way of work. And I think we need to sort of re-angle the discussion about people's, you know, entitlements at work and also that focus on security and safety. And I wouldn't mind bringing in another little sort of example here. Uh, when we think about what happened in Sydney in particular, and in Sydney there were nearly 25% of the population of Sydney were in um, in a higher rate of lockdown where workers for a period of time who were working in essential frontline roles, particularly in retail and fast food, they had to have COVID tests every few days to be able to go to work. So there was a sort of a higher level of expectation on those citizens to be able to go to even to go to work. And we did in the survey ask people about um, how else COVID affected them and if they'd had to take time off for COVID-related reasons. And we found that nearly a third of our workers overall across the country uh, had to get COVID tests during the period and take time off work. They had to take time off work to get vaccinated. They had to take time off work if they were at an exposure location or if they were a close contact with someone with COVID. So they were more likely to be facing those kinds of risks. And for most of our survey respondents, that time that they had to take off was unpaid time. And it's unpaid time because a lot of them are casual workers. So we're kind of seeing that these kinds of frontline workers were really facing the brunt of the pandemic's economic effects and effects on work much more so than a lot of other people who were able to work from home. Ariadne, I think this is so interesting. You know, we've seen some of the discussions in the media about whether people should receive paid vaccination leave or paid leave in, in order to go and get vaccinated. And of course, for, for people who are in secure work and have got some flexibility around their work, that seems like a non-issue. But if you are on minimum wage in casual work and your hours are precarious, that is a major issue. And it's one that I think wasn't really teased out well in some of the public debates. No, and that's really right. And because it was up to sort of state governments often, there were very different experiences across states. Like there was more of a discussion in Victoria, for example, which of course also had much longer lockdowns than the rest of the country around paid leave for both getting tests and getting, um, va- getting vaccinated. But it's what we don't yet know is kind of the effects of that on people's working hours in general. So we've just got a bit of a snapshot about what retail workers were saying, and clearly this was a problem for them. Ariadne, just to, to stay with you for, for a moment, we've already noted and, and, and we know broadly that uh, people in the retail sector are generally young. It's a highly feminised sector. And of course, it's often young women who have caring responsibilities um, for young children um, as they are juggling, you know, work and other responsibilities. In this study or in your work more broadly, have you heard from young women particularly, but um, workers generally, how they managed during the pandemic when they were deemed to be essential workers, so were required to go into work and sometimes for casual workers, that's at very short notice, how they managed that uh, while they were also caring for children and others, but often caring for children at home, perhaps without childcare or or during um, homeschooling. 
Was that something that, that, that you have heard very much about from those workers? We know a little bit in terms of that there was that sort of great juggle. And again, it differed by where you lived. So geography really matters. So for a lot of frontline workers, they could still access childcare. In the lockdowns of 2021, that became harder and harder as childcare centres uh, started to shut. We saw that most schools shut in the first lockdown in 2020. It was much easier for frontline workers to be able to still send their kids to school. But in Melbourne and Sydney, and I think in Canberra, as well, it was much more difficult for schooling to continue. So there was that juggle around homeschooling. And also when you think about it, that in places like Sydney and in and in Melbourne, where you were restricted about how far you could travel, you couldn't use informal mechanisms of care with extended family and with parents in particular, it put a lot of pressure on young women with young kids and young women with young kids in these more precarious positions would likely have been just dropping out of the workforce altogether for that period of time. Yeah, so we're likely to see some of the the flow-on effects um, for for quite a while into the future. Now, Ariadne, are there there strategies uh, or measures that you would like to see governments taking or indeed employers taking to reconnect those women to the workforce, that those women who may have been lost to the workforce as they were juggling all of those pressures during lockdowns? Yeah, I think it is up to employers to engage with their workforce and think about the sort of lived experiences and differences that they've had. I mean, part of the discussion that's going on now is is about um, worker shortages as we're coming up to Christmas. Christmas is going to be a stressful time for retail workers again, particularly when um, there are issues around supply lines. For example, a lot of products that we would usually export from overseas for Christmas gifts and so on, that's been um, really constrained and we, you know, we have a good sense of that too. So those stresses will continue for frontline workers. But there are the longer-term issues about what we want quality of work and secure work to look like that the pandemic period has really um, shown to employers that I guess if they want to be able to keep their workers in the longer term, then they need to be giving them secure hours and secure work as well, because they will need those workers to, um, to rebuild in the post-pandemic period. And perhaps as we come into Christmas and everyone is fe- feeling uh, both the joy but also the stress that the end of the year brings, keep in mind that if your favourite present idea is not available, it's not the fault of the person who's standing at the counter and perhaps treat one another with um, with a little bit of respect is, is a message that we could all take away from this. We are going to have to bring this this conversation to, to a close. It has been so fascinating but also so important um, to talk through what the impacts of the past two years have been on people working in the retail sector because we, we, we just don't hear enough about that. But as we do draw the conversation to a close, I, I wanted to ask each of you just a final two-part question. Um, The first part of that question is perhaps what is the finding of this research that was most striking for you that that will really stay with you? And second, a question that we always like to ask on on the pod, what is your number one recommendation for policymakers as as they they think about how to to better support retail workers into the future? Uh, Bryony, could could we start with you with your thoughts on on that two-part question? Sure. The COVID pandemic has definitely revealed and in many ways exacerbated those long-standing gender inequalities at home and at work. And so, you know, 
in some ways, uh, none of this is new. Um, and this is what, you know, researchers and feminists have long been saying and fighting to change. Um, but from this disruption caused by the pandemic is a real opportunity to establish new directions in workplace gender equality. So thinking about the future of work and the future of gender equality, this is the time to be addressing those gender-based labour market segregation and discrimination issues and building access to mutually beneficial flexibility, ensuring a more equitable distribution of unpaid care and confronting gender-based violence at work and beyond. Thanks, Bryony. That it's it's a big agenda, but it is such an important agenda, and you've you've summarised that beautifully in terms of where we need to go. Um, Ariadne, what what are your thoughts on you know the the big takeaway from the the, the research for for you, but also your number one recommendation for policymakers? Um, yeah, no, they were great points from Bryony. I guess I'd highlight. Uh, for me, the other issue is that how we make policy during a crisis period, and. One of the striking findings was that we were expecting these frontline workers in retail to deal with COVID-19 safety compliances. We were expecting them to ask people to wear masks, to do check-ins and so on. And I think that that was quite unreasonable to put that pressure on this um, young and insecure and culturally diverse workforce. So into the future in our crisis response and how we think about broader issues of ensuring safety for the broader community, we need to see this as a broader health issue and governments need to take responsibility for the the rollout of um, engaging with the communities and enforcing those policies more generally. Yeah, thanks, Ariadne. I think all of those messages um, are just so important. Uh, Bryony Lipton, Ariadne Broman, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been um, a, a terrific conversation. These are such important issues for us to think about um, and such important issues for policymakers to be responding to. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. To our wonderful listeners, we will leave a link to the study in our show notes for today. So do take a look um, at at that study. It's it's really powerful. There is also a a piece on Policy Forum Net if you would like to have a look at at a shortened version of um, of what Bryony, Ariadne and their colleagues found in that study. I'm also thinking as I hear Bryony and Ariadne talk about these real challenges that workers face and how we can think differently about the future of the issues that were raised during our work mini-series this year. That was a real highlight of, of the year for me as we, we heard from leading thinkers from around the world on how we can rethink the nature of work, how we can um, better support workers, but also get a much better balance in, in people's lives. Um, so if you haven't listened to the episodes in that work mini series, please do go and have a, have a listen. They are a perfect complement to the conversation that we've just had today. Next week will be our final episode for 2021. Thank you so much for joining us throughout the year and please do join us next week for our final episode. And please do reach out to us. We love to hear from you. You can contact us via Twitter. That's at apps policy forum at APPS policy forum, or you can get in touch by email at podcast at policyforum.net. You can also join our Facebook group and join the conversations there. We have a very lively set of conversations going on uh, within our Facebook group. If you type policy forum pod into the search bar, you'll find us there. 
and we would love for you to subscribe and join us regularly. You can um, subscribe through whatever platform you like to pod with, and please do leave a review. As I said, we'd love to hear from you. We will be back next week, one more time in 2021, and Anna Greta Hunter will be back on board when we come to you for that very final episode. But for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.